This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the prolific author and eminent geographer Nicholas Crane about his new book, Latitude, the true story of the world's first scientific expedition. It's a high-spirited and adventurous story, Nick, and beyond question, you're the right man to tell it. You are the former president of Britain's Royal Geographical Society, the author of books on astronomy and the making of maps, a traveler on foot and on pack mule over the same high ground in the Andes Mountains where you find the story of the early 18th century expedition from France to measure one degree of latitude at the equator. Maybe you can begin by telling us why the measurement was important, historically, scientifically, politically. And what was at stake and who were the members of the expedition wandering for 10 years in the wilderness? Thank you, Lewis, uh, for, for such a, a, a glowing introduction to what to me is the most important story of our age. While we're in the grips now of both a COVID pandemic and rapid climate change, which are putting greater demands on international science than anything that's gone before us. Um, and if you track back through time and ask yourself, you know, when did international collaboration on a scientific challenge begin? When was the first international scientific expedition, first quest? You end up in 1735 on a port in Western France on a ship called Portefeuille, a naval frigate bound for the Caribbean and South America with 10 French scientists on board who are going to sail the Atlantic and rendezvous in the Caribbean with two Spanish navigators making up a team of 12, the disparate dozen of the Enlightenment, as I like to think of them. It was a chaotic expedition. Their quest, as you've alluded to, Lewis, was to measure on the ground one degree of latitude at the equator. And the reason they wanted to do this is that nobody at the time would agree on the shape of the Earth. What They knew that the planet wasn't perfectly spherical, that it wasn't a true sphere. But they didn't know whether it was stretched towards the poles and so egg-shaped or flattened at the poles and bulging at the equator like a pumpkin. And there were two scientific camps, if you like. The English camp, led by Isaac Newton, who believed that Earth bulged at the equator because the centrifugal spinning forces of Earth were forcing the then supposedly liquid interior of the Earth to fly outwards and cause Earth to bulge at the equator, or whether uh, the, uh, the, the, against Newton you had the, the followers of uh, René Descartes, the French philosopher, who believed that Earth was egg-shaped. Um, and he believed that because they'd made some measurements in France that suggested that it was indeed egg-shaped, that it was prolate rather than oblate. So that was the that was the quest to find the true shape of the earth but why would they spend so much time and actually huge amounts of money 
and uh, at a cost of, of lives, people died doing this, to find out the shape of the Earth. And the answer is that there was a practical reason. Without knowing the true shape of the Earth, you couldn't make accurate seagoing charts or land maps. And without knowing the shape of the Earth, the, the great thinkers of the Enlightenment were left in the dark about this extraordinary planet that we were living on. I mean, the Enlightenment was the you know this great age of, of reason, when reason rather than faith were driving the big thinkers, most of them based in France at the time. You know, there, was a, there was a real quest for truth. And indeed, you know, we're, we're still locked in that quest now. The people who doubt the science behind COVID, behind the solutions to the pandemic, the people who doubt the climate scientists, are kind of the leftovers from those doubters back in the early 18th century, the deniers who refuse to accept scientific truth. And it's always been a real problem for the rest of humanity, people who, who don't follow the science. So there's the reasons for going on this expedition. It really mattered. 1735. So uh, this is a world absolutely unlike the world we live in now. They decided to go to the equator because they needed to measure on the ground one degree of latitude at the equator, then compare it to length of one degree of latitude in the north or southern hemisphere. And the difference between those two figures would reveal the true shape of the Earth. Um, now, the only accessible section of the equator to Europeans at the time was really South America. South America had been conquered by the Spanish 200 years earlier, and the vice royalty of Peru uh, as Ecuador was then known, Ecuador spans the equator in South America, was relatively accessible to Europeans, controlled by Spain, which is why this primarily French expedition decided to take on board two Spanish naval lieutenants to gain them access to Spain, to Spanish South America. So the, the, the plan was to go and measure one degree of latitude in, in, on the equator in South America, come home and compare it to the length of one degree of latitude in France. Um, that was the quest, and then the result would would reveal the true shape of the earth it was a It was a quest for a single number effectively um, but as I share in my book, uh, this ten year expedition revealed far more than a single number. Um, as I say, this was the height of the enlightenment, and so the the curiosity scientific curiosity drove every member of this twelve man expedition who went to South America. So I say they set sail in, in 1735, in May of that year. It took them one year to get to the high Andes in South America, where they were going to conduct this experiment and take these measurements, because they had to sail the Atlantic. They island hopped across the Caribbean. They landed on the, the Panamanian Isthmus. They had to hike over the Isthmus to the Pacific Ocean with all of the equipment, including wigs and trunks full of books and so on, firearms, swords, uh, all sorts of huge trunks and crates full of scientific instruments that they brought from England, from London, because London at the time was the source of the best scientific instruments in the world. Then they hitched a lift on a merchant ship down the Pacific coast to Guayaquil, big port on what is now the coast of Ecuador loaded everything into river barges. They went upstream, up the River Guayas. And when they couldn't go any further, they loaded everything onto mules, trekked over the Andes. And eventually, a year after leaving France and Spain, they reached Quito, the capital of the northern area of the Viceroyalty of Peru, which is where they set up their base for this great measuring exercise. But this was difficult terrain. You know, I mean, they'd come from Europe. None of them had been to the high Andes before. 
they'd heard, heard stories about it, and of course they'd read all the reports of the conquistadors had conquered the, the Incas two hundred years earlier. So they they'd read they had there were some mythical accounts of these huge untouched rainforests of roaring canyons and gorges, rivers you couldn't cross by any other means than swaying liana bridges, and of course the high Andes themselves, which included live erupting volcanoes, snow-capped volcanoes erupting. It's a completely incredible concept to Northern Europeans. I mean, the only erupting snow-covered volcano at the time in Europe was, was Mount Etna in Sicily. Um, and, of course, we're talking about very high altitudes. So, you know, they're operating at ten to 14,000 feet, anything above eight, 9,000 feet, and you're going to notice that the air is thinner and suffer from altitude sickness. And, of course, they all became very ill because it wasn't just uh, the altitude they had to deal with, but, uh, but wildlife. Uh, uh, there were uh, they were stung by scorpions. There were snakes to look out for. They were eaten alive by mosquitoes. And there was a, ra- there were a range of really vile diseases. Um, the most dangerous for them by far was malaria. And um, at the time... Uh, quinine, the um, the powdered bark of the chinchona tree, was by far the most effective cure for malaria. And indeed, one of the members of the team had brought some quinine powder out with him just as an emergency. Um, and then there's there's another really horrible disease uh, called vico or, or gangrene of the anus, and the uh, as they knew it. And uh, I mean, the only the only known cure for that was a was a lemon um, infused with um, guinea pepper and gunpowder, and then inserted, um, which must have stung a lot, uh, especially because a lot of the time they're riding horses and mules, so you didn't want vico if you had a long uh, long horse ride ahead of you. So now, now, in terms of the uh, the members of the expedition, as I say, there were twelve main operators in total, main 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 scientists in total. But they were backed up by an unnamed crowd, an unnamed team of of slaves, because this was at the height of the slave trade, and of local assistants, porters, horsemen, boatmen, high altitude porters. Um, none of whom are named in any of the reports I came across. So there's an invisible support team. And this is one of the most, if you like, disturbing elements of the story. The fact that, you know, because this was the height of the slave trade, but we have a 12 men who felt unable through their own bigotry to acknowledge the help they were getting from all of the people that made this expedition possible. They're, they're clearly there. You can read between the lines of all the accounts. So you know that they can't possibly climb these huge volcanoes without other people helping them, but their helpers are just not not named. Before we go on, I'm a couple of questions. What are your sources? I mean, these people kept notes, their letters, they they're writing to each other. They're writing to astronomers and scientists in Europe. And and so you're, you're relying on their own uh, journals, notes, and observations. And what, out of curiosity, is, is the uh, a degree of latitude when measured at land? I mean, how many miles is a degree of latitude? Really, really good point. Yes, so so I'll answer both those in 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 the, in the order you put them to me, Lewis. The first is that my that the main sources were the the journals kept by the uh, main Spanish and French protagonists themselves, 
and the letters that some of them wrote and the expedition reports they produced afterwards, uh, most of which are housed in um, online, actually. So you can read them online in the, in the National Library in Paris. So there's an amazing amount of material available. I also made great use of uh, the University of Texas, who have all the Ecuadorian uh, military maps online. So I was able to track the progress of the expedition at a scale of one to 50,000 using the online services of University of Texas. And um, uh, and of course, the, the modern, if you, if you look at, say, Google Earth satellite images on Google Earth, you can now effect, do a kind of street view by, and, and you can do a, a digitized swoop down and stand on top of any volcano you can choose in South America and look at the view as it would have been 200 years ago. So the sources were many. Uh, there have been, uh, been several books written about aspects of the expedition already. Um, and um, uh, they are some of them are completely outstanding. So there's a lot more material I had access to than I could possibly use. And you, you've, you also yourself have been over some of the same ground. That's right, uh, Lewis. I, I in a, back in the 1980s, I, I rashly decided to um, court my um, my prospective wife uh, by inviting her to join me on a trip by steam train, dugout canoe and mountain hiking boots through the rainforest <laughs> mountains of South America. And um, uh, by, by coincidence, we, I, I, I did suggest at one point we did a three-day trek over the high Andes, we, uh, in, interestingly, following the route taken by the expedition. And uh, uh, she was very game. We, we spent a, a night in a high-altitude bivouac in two dustbin bags completely covered in ice. Um, and uh, uh, that, after that, I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll delay my suggestion of marriage until another, another expedition. But... Um, it was a, it was a very interesting experience to go and go over the mountains that the, the expedition went over two hundred years earlier. And one of the things that struck me when you when you do climb in the high Andes uh, is how incredibly bleak and barren and exposed those slopes are. What you don't have are, are the shelter of many caves. There are no forests. There's no vegetation. It's like a high altitude, steeply sloping desert. So if you get hit by a storm, there is nowhere to run. Um, and you know, many of the accounts the exhibition produced, uh, you know, tell of tents being ripped apart, tent poles being snapped, of many close encounters with hyper hypothermia uh, and frostbite. Um, I mean, it was amazing they survived at all in an age when there was no Gore-Tex or, or high-tech equipment to, 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 to use. To answer your other question, Lewis, the, uh, the length of one degree of latitude on the ground is uh, uh, around 60 miles. Um, so... What they what they had to do was very accurately measure on the ground a distance of around sixty miles. I mean, by accurately, we're talking to within meters, ideally. Um, but using instruments with regard today as being antiquated, but to make their findings more accurate, they made life even more difficult for themselves by deciding to measure not one degree of latitude but three degrees of latitude, and then divide the result by. Three three to get a more accurate result. Uh, so they, were, they actually had to use a method called triangulation that had been perfected in the 15, early 1500s by Northern European map makers to, uh, to cover 200 miles of erupting volcanoes, high altitude plains, uh, ravines, uh, rivers, uh, areas where there was very little access to food. And of course, um, 
the Incas didn't have wheeled vehicles. So most of the roads, if that's what you want to call them, they were using were actually mule tracks. So travel was incredibly difficult. Now to do this for 200 miles uh, through what we would label today as wilderness. Um, and you know, as we know, in this day and age, it's very difficult to really claim there's any true wilderness left anywhere on the planet. But but 200 years ago, in the early 1700s, there was a lot of wilderness, um, and they were they were carrying their cast iron quadrants, these huge, heavy instruments that they used for measuring angles up to top of volcanoes that that were very remote. And some of these places probably wouldn't, well, most of them had never been trodden by Europeans before. So nearly everywhere they went hadn't been trodden by a European. Um, the uh, local shepherds, uh, the local cow herders, the, the people traveling uh, from town to town would have been uh, some of the more accessible places. But on the whole, they were off the beaten track. All right. You were, you were going to now... Tell us about the principal members of the expedition. I was, yes. Yeah. So the, the, the main the main member, the, the expedition of, of 12 Europeans um, could be said to have um, a triumvirate of leaders. Uh, the, the nominal leader, the man who'd originally suggested the idea to the French Academy of Sciences was a man called Louis Godin, uh, a vain, uh, young, very handsome um, egotistical, um, no leadership qualities whatsoever. I mean, you wouldn't want to put him in charge of boulangerie, let alone an international scientific expedition to South America in the 1730s. Um, he was pretty hopeless. Um, uh, so we'll come back to him in a second. Um, the other two leading French members were Pierre Bouger, who was a brilliant hydrographer. His, his real expertise was in the scientific um, design of ships. Uh, he believed that the old school of, of naval architecture where shipbuilders inherited the skills of shipbuilding from their fathers and actually ships were designed through habit rather than science. He believed that was, you know, that, that age should come to an end. And he believed that ships should be designed scientifically uh, in such a way that they sailed faster and more reliably through the ocean. And he brought this experience in hydrography to surveying. Uh, he was also a brilliant mathematician. He was from Brittany. He lived in a, in a seaport in Brittany. His father had been a professor of hydrography. Brilliant mathematician. So he, he if you like, was the, 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 the brains, the geek on the, on the expedition. The third leading Frenchman was my favourite. He was Charles-Marie de la Condamine. He was a war veteran, a maverick, um, in, in, in almost insanely curious. He was reckless. He couldn't stop himself from getting interested in things. So he gathered information on the Inca civilization, on quinine. He was fascinated by uh, lost Inca gold. So he spent a lot of time collecting uh, Inca jewelry. Looking, he went off on an on a expedition to look for gold on one occasion. And he was a great map maker. Uh, so Charles made the Condamine was, was a, a eccentric as well. Uh, I mean, when when he was in the army, he uh, he was observing the fall of artillery shells once during a siege in Spain, and um, 
and he couldn't understand why all the enemy's shells were landing around him. He was only one, you know, on his own. And then somebody pointed out that it was because he was standing on top of a hill wearing a purple cloak. <laughs> he was, which is kind of very typical of Le Condamine. He was, he was deeply curious. Um, he, he was also a friend of Voltaire. He was, and thank you for reminding me, Lewis. Now that relationship gave me much amusement. So. So Voltaire, um, I mean, they were best buddies, really. And um, and before this expedition set sail, they, they, they were two young renegades in Paris. And, um, and they came up with this scam. Um, they realized that they could hoodwink the National Lottery, the French National Lottery, mathematically. So they teamed, teamed up, they put, got together three or four other people, and they, they ran this kind of heist on the National Lottery, and they made it an absolute fortune. In fact, it was Le Condamine's share. I'm absolutely certain he would never admit to it in his journals, but I'm sure that it was Le Condamine's share from this lottery scam that funded the expedition, because very shortly after the expedition arrived in South America, it ran out of money. Then Le Condamine miraculously came up with these letters of credit for enormous sums of money that effectively bankrolled the expedition. He never really explains how he came to be so rich, but I'm sure it was this, this, this scam with Voltaire. And later in life, Voltaire wrote this wonderful novel, Candide, uh, Condide. And, um, uh, when you read it carefully, there's a passage in Condide towards the end where the protagonist, um, uh, finds finds himself in a uh, in a, a high snowy mountain range, uh, beleaguered by the elements. And this is there's no question in my mind that this was this had been fed to him by Le Condamine after Le Condamine came back from South America. So the two of them had this kind of creative interchange that was absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, so those those are the three the three leading members of the expedition. Now on that that leaves. Um, nine other French uh, key key elements. So they included uh, a surveyor, uh, uh, an instrument maker, uh, a draftsman who was going to make all the maps. There was a botanist, uh, a brilliant botanist, actually, Joseph de Jusseau. Uh, and uh, there were a couple of assistants. There was a surgeon um, who ended up getting murdered in most unfortunate circumstances. Um, now, there were two other key members of this 12-man team. I mentioned some of the 10 Frenchmen, but there are two Spanish naval lieutenants, without whom this expedition would have foundered very quickly, were also an extraordinary pair. So two of them, Jorge Juan and Ulloa, um, uh, Ulloa was only 19 years old when he set sail. Um, they'd both spent their teen years sailing in the Spanish naval marine, and they'd both been involved in sea battles, so they were seasoned war vets, even in their teens, um, and they were brilliant navigators. I mean, if you're going to serve in the Spanish naval marine, you had to be a brilliant navigator, so that meant knowing a lot about astral navigation, using the stars to find your way about. And as things turned out, it was the astral navigation uh, and the, uh, the, the the map reading skills provided by the two Spanish, not and uh, not not to mention their their fighting skills. I mean, they were they were professional warriors, and you know this this was an expedition that needed close protection. Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> the Spanish naval lieutenants provided on at least one occasion a bit too much um, close protection, and. Uh, Unfortunately, in a, in a squabble in the main square of Quito, one of the two naval lieutenants um, killed 
the secretary of the provincial governor um, with a knife with a sword blow. Uh, most unfortunate. I mean, if you're going to run an international expedition in South America, Spanish South America, what you don't want to do is to kill the president's secretary in a fight. So that set them back a bit. Um, and uh, uh, But they were remarkable, these two Spanish naval lieutenants. So that made up the team of 12. Um, they were, um, I mean, if you're going to, if you, these days, if you put together a scientific expedition, just imagine um, this as a, as, a, as a trip to Antarctica or even a moonshot, an Apollo moonshot. If you're going to try and put, put 12 men on the moon, just imagine what kind of selection process you'd have to go through. I mean, even with the, with the three-man Apollo missions, the selection process took years, didn't it, in terms of training, and then they do personality profiling, and, you know, are these three people going to manage to get on all right? Um, huge efforts put into, kind, into, into, into the compatibility, human compatibility of the individual sent on a, on a very demanding expedition. These 12 scientists were just literally thrown together no uh, uh, what we would call proper selection done at all um so unsurprisingly i mean it was an entirely dysfunctional team and um the leader louis goda before they'd even got to south america he uh, he squandered a vast amount of the expedition funds on on prostitutes in the caribbean um which which absolutely upset the other members of the of the expedition who were uh, let's say had rather higher virtues than their leader um and of course it, it it caused the expedition to run out of money far too soon um so louis godin you know, as if blowing the money in a brothel wasn't bad enough um what he did was to lose the respect of his fellow team members and you know just imagine um being in an apollo spacecraft if 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 two of the astronauts lose the respect of the of the nominal leader um i mean it's just not going to work is it so you know once you've lost respect as a leader um of a of a of a, an expedition facing very tough vicissitudes then you got real problems and louis godin's leadership was eroded year by year by year by year until he eventually kind of faded into the background and actually, before he even came back to France, he was ejected from the Academy of Sciences in Paris. They just they just basically chucked him out, um, which left Pierre Bouget, the brilliant mathematician, really effectively as the intellectual leader with Charles Marie de la Condamine, the maverick, war vet, um, deeply curious, the reckless maverick being the kind of the energy, the driving force behind this expedition. And they made a very good duo, actually. I mean, by trial and error, the expedition ended up being run by by two people who were compatible. One had the intellectual firepower, the other had the kind of the energy, the drive to push things on all the time, um, and the deep curiosity. Because, um, and I hope I hope I have time to mention this, Lewis. But they, so I've alluded, they they came back with far more than the number, and um, it was this kind of wide ranging scientific curiosity. That, that these two men managed, managed talk to about work. talk about the method i mean they have to set up on peaks i mean the distance is through through a, a, a valley between two mountain ranges and and they have to take their observations from the peaks so they have to set up uh towers or or uh, markers 
an enormous effort to climb these steep mountains and then they have to is that how it works is that how they measure it it, it between sight lines between peaks exactly yes you've got you've, you've absolutely got it right Lewis. so what they had what they what they were doing was using a uh, an earlier 16th century method of surveying called triangulation now triangulation is is a rather brilliant um ancient concept um uh, that that depends upon the fundamental properties of a triangle a triangle has a total of six angles and sides as we know and all you have to do is know the length of one side of, of the first triangle. You just measure that on the ground, and thereafter, all you have to do as you connect one triangle to the next is measure angles, because you can mathematically calculate the length of all the other sides of all the other triangles. So their plan was to lay out an imaginary chain of triangles for this 200-mile section south of the, the equator one triangle joining the next one. So it was like a gigantic necklace of triangles draped southwards from the equator. And uh, so they had to measure the first, they had to measure the length of one side of the first triangle. That was the first difficult challenge they had to do. And then thereafter, they carried these quadrants to high points at the corner of each triangle. Now they, they placed a corner, the vertex of each triangle on a high point, usually a, a volcano, a hilltop, a high plateau, um, and then they would measure the angles between the surrounding uh, vertices, on, which are also on high points. And they, to, to make these high points visible, they created what they called signals. Out, they, these were pyramids of timber and white painted canvas held to the ground with ropes. So they were like yeah, miniature pyramids, really, but they were quite large so they would be visible from 10, 20, 30 miles away uh, through a telescope um, attached to the quadrant they were using to measure the angle. So all you had to do was set up a quadrant and then look through your telescope, find two of these white painted signals on distant peaks, then measure the angle between the two of them, and you've got an angle between one of these hypothetical, two, two sides of a hypothetical triangle. Now, they, one of the, there were many practical problems. I mean, that, that, that's what they thought would be simple enough to do when they were sitting in, in their, their base in the, in the provincial capital of Quito. Now, what actually happened was that they'd, they'd lug these quadrants up to a 10, 12, 13, 14,000 foot volcano or mountaintop. They'd look through a telescope and see, telescope and see nothing but cloud. Uh, so it might take two, three, four days, sometimes two or three weeks to get the observations they needed. The other big problem they had was surviving the storms that hit them on these mountain tops. And as I say, on one occasion, their tents were ripped down, the tent poles snapped. On another occasion, they were camping in a hut on a mountain called Pichincha, way above the snow line. And they spent three weeks up there um, without realizing they were getting debilitated by altitude sickness. So they became very ill, coughing up blood, freezing cold. Uh, I mean, they had no camping stoves in those days. They managed, they'd got some firewood up there and they were having to use um, metal containers and pottery containers of, of hot coals just to keep themselves alive. And they never did get the readings. They had to set up a lower station on the mountain later on. And the other big problem they had was that the um, when local people came across these white painted timber 
signals held down by ropes um they were just thinking oh that's handy somebody's left some timber and rope, <laughs> rope and canvas up here for me i'll take this away and make use it for shepherd's hut so the signals kept disappearing uh before they could get the measurements and, and with time they realized that it would be totally um fruitless to carry on building these signals because each time one was was removed they'd have to ride a horse back to the mountainside with all the timber and rope and white paint and, and build another one and there was the answer was to use their their small army tents which were white and pitch those on the mountaintops as signals and leave somebody basically camped in the tent waiting till the observations have been completed and that was the system they ended up using these these white painted uh, these white these white army tents and it worked very well what why did it take 10 years well they the the 200 miles of triangles were accomplished fairly briskly in two or three years uh, and they went south from the city of quito to it's really a large town rather than a city of, uh, called cuenca uh, and that was their 200 mile span of, of triangles but then um which is which they thought would be the difficult thing and in a way physically it was because that was during that period uh they were subjected to an enormous number of accidents one of them was thrown into a ravine from horseback there were lacondamine was thrown off a horse and badly injured they had they were hit by storms they were frequently hungry they had diseases but but the, the bit that they had to do after that they thought would just be a postscript lasting several weeks which is when they had to use a very delicate enormous scientific instrument called a zenith sector which effectively allowed them to measure the height above the horizon of a very bright star, Epsilon Orion, that they decided to, to use, um, to, to measure the height of that star above the horizon. And that would allow them to lock the two ends of the chain of triangles to the, to the sky, to, to, um, which would fix the latitudinal point point to two latitudinal points of the ends of the triangle so the astronomy was completely essential um and it would it would it was that set of measurements using zenith sectors that would complete the, the 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 whole expedition but it took them years because the zenith sector was was a, a untried at altitude in an earthquake zone and so every time there was an earthquake the zenith, zenith sectors got disturbed they're very sensitive instruments. So even the the um, the freezing and warming of the walls of the building that the zenith sectors were housed in would affect the readings of the of the calibration on the on the device. Um, and these these zenith sectors were so huge, twelve to eighteen foot long, that they had to be housed in purpose built observatories with a hole in the roof through which they could observe the stars. So enormously complicated. Um, Hugo the the expeditions instrument maker had to build several of these zenith sectors with with really insufficient tools and raw materials and these are these are complicated scientific instruments um it took them years and that is really the astronomical element to this expedition that made it drag on for 10 years and then of course they had the problem of getting home in another year's journey to get home did they have fallings out i mean these people are strong personalities and they're two of them are spanish three of them are french i mean do they have uh disagreements fallings out <laughs> you've you've spotted some some stories i told in the book there lewis yes they did um i mean what's amazing is that uh they didn't kill each other um <laughs> they, they, did, they, they did fall out 
Um, but they reserved their ire, their anger, for the pages of their journals. Um, and uh, so there, and among the fallings out, um, Bouget and La Condamine uh, had a bit of a tiff late in the expedition. Bouget wanted to, to get back to France. He got... Uh, uh, Fed up with the, how how is dragging on, Le Condamine insisted on staying to the bitter end. Now Louis Godin fell out with everybody. He 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 was just he just disappeared before the expedition finished. And the two Spanish naval lieutenants they they were called away more than once to uh, to help arm Spanish South America against marauding British fleets. So they had they were they had no choice but just to disappear, and this caused its own problems because suddenly the, the expedition had lost two of its most important members. And uh, when they came back uh, from the second of their um, uh, naval forays against the British, they discovered that the Condamine had commissioned a memorial, a monument to the expedition, uh, recording this incredible attempt, the successful attempt to measure the length of one degree of latitude at the equator. But the Condamine had listed on the memorial, the monument, uh, only the French members of the expedition. He didn't, he didn't even record the fact that the two Spanish members of the expedition even existed. So they were they really got the hump, um, and that caused a massive stink um, and a, a legal battle. So, uh, and then the French surgeon uh, he was murdered uh, during a fiesta because he was uh, he'd fallen for a local Spanish beauty who also happened, unfortunately, to be uh, connected to um, a fairly headstrong uh, local administrator, and. Um, uh, the surgeon, the French surgeon, misbehaved in the bull ring, and the crowd turned against him. And he got the bullfighter's knife between the ribs, punctured his spleen, and he bled to death very slowly over several days. And Le Condamine, you asked, you know, whether people, you know, fell out. Well, Le Condamine then fell out with the local Spanish authorities because he was he was disgusted and appalled because the surgeon was was his closest friend on the expedition, albeit a misbehaving friend. Um, probably why Le Condamine liked him. Uh, and so Le Condamine then got involved in several years of legal disputes with the Spanish authorities in Cuenca, trying to get the perpetrators of the murder imprisoned, um, which indeed eventually happened. So that was a massive falling out with the Spanish authorities in Cuenca. And indeed, there, there, were, there were repercussions because when Le Condamine eventually came to leave South America, um, and very eccentrically, instead of going back the easy way, he decided to descend the entire length of the Amazon on a homemade balsa wood raft. Um, a, a group of the Spanish uh, uh, Cuenca officials he had upset tried to ambush him and kill him on the way to his balsa wood raft. So, uh, yeah, there were various um, fallings out that had to be accommodated during the expedition. Yes, yeah. And when they get home, do uh, the French, well, when the French... Uh, academicians get back. Is there a reward? Are they recognized for it? I mean, what what becomes of the three primary Frenchmen? Very different, um, very different outcomes. I mean, they they came back in in uh, to, to acclaim from the French Academy. There'd been a rival expedition while they'd been away to the Baltic. Uh, where uh, a rival team of scientists from the Academy of Sciences in Paris had tried to measure one degree of latitude um, up near the Arctic Circle, and they'd, but they'd, and they'd come back with a successful figure, 
but they only measured the length of one degree, which which was really nothing like as thorough as the three degrees measured by the the, um, the mission to South America. But when they came back, um, uh, Louis Goda, as I said, he had been he was thrown out of the academy. He eventually made his way back to France, but was much derided. Uh, excluded from the academy, and eventually he was invited to Spain, where he took up an academic post there. Um, Pierre Bouger came back um, to wide acclaim. He was the first of the three French leading Frenchmen to get back. He very he was, quickly. He, he was the hydrographer and the mathematician. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the Pierre Bouget, the brilliant hydrographer, brilliant mathematician, he was the first of the three leading Frenchmen to get back. And he he really stole a march on the other two by producing the first authoritative account of the mission, um, which, of course, is a massive scientific bestseller. Um, and he, he was very thorough. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a boring read because he's a you can, you can imagine, you know, a, it's it's a geek's epic account of a lot of maths. I mean, I, I haven't said that it's completely fascinating. What I mean is that it's not a page turner. You know, you've got to be really into maths, surveying, astronomy, and so on to really enjoy it. It's every page. Le Condamine got back later, and um, and produced, if you like, he published his journals, which were like a, a much more of a kind of page turning, uh, and, and you'll never guess what happened to me next kind of account, which I. I warm to uh, a lot of the, the the really fascinating and often very funny detail, um, telling detail comes from the published journals of Le Condamine. Um, and um, and they, they, they were, Le Condamine was, they were both high, you know, Le Condamine, he comes back and he starts hanging out with Voltaire again in the cafes on Banks of the Seine, uh, happy as happy as, as Larry, and, and sharing his stories with anybody who'd care to listen. He, he did a lot more work, but unfortunately died before his time. Um, ever curious, he developed a hernia and decided to, very, this is very typical of Condamine. He decided to subject himself to an experimental hernia operation, which, you know, it didn't work tragically. He died. All right. Say a last word, Nick, about your notion of the first scientific expedition and the way science is supposed to work across borders and backgrounds and, and why that is such an important lesson for us to be reminded of today when our dealing with a pandemic, you know, science is going off and it's in different directions. Thank you, Lewis. Yes, I was, I was motivated, driven, I mean, uh, passionately, actually, to, to tell this story because of the situation we find ourselves in today. Uh, facing a global pandemic that's far from over and also global accelerated climate change that has an indefinite length to run. So we have these two enormous scientific challenges and they both can only be solved through the international collaboration of science. So science, true science, knows no political borders. It has to be shared. It has to be collaborative. And this expedition to South America in the 1730s was the first attempt to share international scientific endeavor. And it was successful. They showed how to do it and how not to do it. If you like, it was a dry run, the prototype. They were the prototypical international scientists. And if we're going to solve, uh, if we're going to find a pathway through 
the current pandemic. And of course, there will be other pandemics in the future, hopefully not for a very long time. But we will be confronted by this kind of biological challenge again. And we know we're being confronted by climate change. And the only ways forward, the only ways we can adapt to rapidly changing circumstances is by pooling our scientific knowledge and by supporting science. That means money and it means political will. That's the future for our planet. Well, listen, Abby, it's a wonderful book, Nick, and the a lesson for us all as well as a entertainment for us all. So thank you very much, Nicholas Crane, for speaking with us today about your new book, Latitude, the true story of the world's first scientific expedition. Thank you very much, Lewis. Um, I'm really, really uh, an honor to talk to you. And I don't know how you did it, but somehow you drew out from me the, the most... Um, uh, that was the, the best conversation I think I've had about this book, and I've done a large number of them. So thank you very much indeed. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.